Shatter the stigma, mend the mind. Welcome to the live broadcast of Talk Revolution, hosted by Dr. Paul Sambataro, neurocognitive scientist, author, and retired school psychologist. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Talk Revolution. This is our fourth podcast on BBS Radio. We are here today to discuss current topics with new perspective based on cognitive function. The orientation of these discussions is to bring to light the importance of the underlying foundation to solving our most social problems, disabilities, poverty, violence, crime, and all of those social society ills we rail against, but with little regard to consequence and efficacy. Today's podcast episode is focused on special education. We have touched briefly in our previous podcasts on emotional processing, cognitive functioning, including cognitive functioning and pain. Today we will discuss special education in our schools with emphasis on parent advocacy general eligibility regulations as interpreted and implemented by school districts from federal regulations. What I will avoid is specifying what and how each state and or school district interprets and implements federal regulations. The difference between states, districts and schools often comes down to each building and the interaction between special education teachers, counselors, and administrative staff. My discussion will center on the ideal of special education and the practical, what really happens in the process and how students and parents may feel they have been derailed from getting the education attention they need to succeed. To begin, we'll just briefly identify some of the federal regulations that state have come to adopt. I will not go into specifics as this is, uh, there is quite a bit of information online in regards to federal education and as well as state. But the importance will be detailing what happens on the ground floor. Federal laws include Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA of 2004. The IDEA directs federal financial assistance to state and local education agencies to guarantee that school systems provide to eligible students with disabilities a free, appropriate public education, FAP in the least restrictive environment. This is not to be confused with FERPA. FERPA is the, FERPA is the protection of records in which students' records are not given out unless identified uh, by the parent or the student at age 18. It is important to understand that these federal regulations, while they are specific in their uh, rules, 
can be interpreted and adopted in many, uh, several different ways. For example, uh, most states include statewide plans, such as in Texas, the agency shall develop and modify as necessary a statewide design consistent with federal law. For the delivery of services to children with disabilities in this state, that includes rules for the administration and funding of the special education program so that a free appropriate public education is available to all of those children between the ages of three and 21. And that is fairly consistent from my experience from the uh, state of Texas to the state of Washington with individual differences between. The importance of, the importance of following regulation is the understanding of eligibility. The eligibility process on the surface may seem uh, both cumbersome and daunting to the parent, but it's really about not having that understanding before needing or being referred for services. In most cases, I feel in my position that many parents are unprepared for the information that is dealt with to deliver the eligibility or qualifications portions. And with that comes a wide degree of subjective inference in determining who is eligible and who qualifies. So to make this, to move forward as simple, in a simplified manner, that may be an oversimplification as I'm not an expert in all laws and in all regulations across all states. I'm just simply going to give an outline so that we can move forward with the practical self-advocacy and parent advocacy of their child moving forward with special education. If at any time you have questions in regards to eligibility, qualification, special education in general, I will certainly do my best to answer them. It is a very wide subject with many laws and requirements and often uh, can be disappointing as well as rewarding. So essentially, eligibility criteria in its simplest observation of federal regulation usually adheres to those students as mentioned from the age of three to 21 and and includes a student is eligible to participate in a school district special education program if the student has a visual or auditory impairment that prevents student from being adequately or safely educated. It can be a physical disability, can be a cognitive issue, can be an emotional disturbance, a learning disability, autism, speech disability, or traumatic brain, in brain injury. And here's the practical side of all of this. There are many different reasons for a parent to give it to try in having their child referred for qualifications for special education. 
there are two pathways. One tends to, will be through the counselor and general education population, and the other through the qualifications and usually involves assessments by a school psychologist to determine the to determine the need for an IEP. This is an individual education plan. On a practical level, those are two pathways that are mentioned in federal law. One is based on the Disabilities Act, ADA, Section 504, and thus the name that many parents may know, the 504. And this, is, in general, is a affirmation that a student has a disability verified by, by medical documentation. So this is an important uh, information to, to understand when a referral is made, it may be made for a 504, but the 504 is usually, at least within the state's that I have been is usually reserved for accommodations only. And this will be important in future discussions about transition from high school to college. But for now, the 504 is usually reserved for the accommodation portion of a Disabilities Act. If there are additional issues that also are not associated but are referred to for an individual education plan, this involves normally the curriculum, identification of the curriculum that is in deficit and the change and the individualized of that curriculum. This is very, although this is the beginning of the part of a child's uh, eligibility referral, it is one of the key issues of placement and the services received. So on one hand, the child in a 504 stays within the general population and largely this is, becomes a money division, a budget division between special needs, special education, and general education. And the, here, when we get to uh, towards the end, we'll discuss the implications of that budget divide and the importance of, uh, as well as the referral. There is, at the beginning, a referral can be determined or are made by a parent, a teacher, or someone close to that student who has knowledge of their issues, disabilities, or struggles. It is that referral that needs to be answered by the school. So every referral, whether written by the parent or teacher, should be, in theory or in practice, answered by a school psychologist or someone who has knowledge of that referral or the counselor. 
And there are multiple, usually there are multiple referrals. And it becomes on the school district to identify what referrals are eligible and what referrals may in fact be 504. This is the critical pathway divergence in which one, a student goes in one direction and another goes in the other direction. It is not necessary that one, one can go from one portion with an IE plan and later improves his situation and just simply needs accommodations and goes to a 504 or a person from a 504 needs more instruction or curriculum and goes to a special education portion of the program. But in doing so, each of these takes time. Everything has a lead time in which people do examine, do analytics of their grades, analytics of past grades, past tests, and current status, whether it be behavior or other analytics that involve uh, evidence of needing one form or another uh, services. This is usually where the most contentious portion of subjective uh, of determination comes into play. If a school has uh, has is met a percentage of children or students with a special needs or special education qualifications, there may be li more limited room, literally, for additional students, and there may be more pressure to up the bar for students who, uh, for to increase the 504 program. But in doing so, this puts more pressure on the counselors as the counselors who work with general education students are now loaded up with 504 plans. And there is usually pushback to, especially if there's a feeling of overload of 504 students, or they have students who are consistently failing that are in a 504 plan and need to be evaluated to address their continuing struggles in education. And I believe, and this is my opinion, having gone through this process on both sides, that this is the hardest part. This is the frustration of parents who have students who have been placed in a 504 and continue to see their students, their children struggle and want to move them. And the pushback, if there is a high percentage already that have been qualified, there's a limited number of special education teachers. And the fact that each special education teacher is limited, usually either by contract or uh, by um, agreement to a certain number of children in their care. Because for each one of those children, they have to draw and maintain an individualized program. So at this point, my discussion here today is really to give a sense 
of where the possible frustrations and confrontation that I have been seated at evolve from. The parents who are very frustrated with the lack of response from teachers with a 504 plan and would like more attention given with an individualized plan and the process in which that occurs is not only both slow, but also cumbersome with potentially not enough teachers or not enough money in the program to adjust for that. And the federal law does not cite a specific number as to the states or school districts as not being able to address this. So it is incumbent on the districts to, despite the numbers, they are supposed to address this, but they balance their books by the amount of money states usually give the districts by the numbers that are in their, in their special education, just as they would if by the number of general general education. And here, just briefly to mention that for me, it begins to be a budget that divides rather than unites. But we'll touch on that later on in the show. So that's a brief, it is very brief as this subject is broad and I would like to, unless there's any questions in regards to that, I would like to move forward with both cases and other incidents on where the struggles between what might be parent expectation and uh, the ability to serve uh, those expectations. So overall, again, there is a referral process that needs to be, to recap, there's a referral process that needs to be addressed by the school when an email or a letter is sent requesting a referral by the parent or teacher. There needs to be a response and then a certain number of days that is allowed for that response. Again, this is the process of uh, time. Each letter and each response can have 20 days, 30 days, and each is in addition to the next step. So by the time we get done, we are in due two months or three months lead time. <clears throat> so after the referral, given that we will assume that a student is referred and the referral <clears throat> could be noted that they did have a medical uh, and it was affecting their grades, then a 504 may be deemed appropriate for that student and they would be placed with the counselor who would manage that 504. And then each teacher should receive the plan of that student to note the accommodations. There is a slight practical flaw in this plan in regards to what usually happens or in many circumstances, unless the teacher is very energized and motivated, is that often the 504 plan is not kept in mind as much as it is the student or the parent. And there usually is a gap between the parent and the teacher 
in regards to what happens with a student when they rely on the student. So in case, case in point, which I found multiple times to be true, the parent and the teacher relied on the student who by all means had a disability and needed accommodations, relied on the student to pass the information back and forth. Inevitably, I would say 70% to 80% of the time, the student was not performing that communication, usually based on the most common, uh, usually based on their disability, the most common, which was ADHD or some sort, and often involved short-term memory issues or distractions uh, of the same. In those cases, uh, frustration was from parent to teacher to student, and the stress, immediately the student stress increased and anxiety, and it spiraled spiraled upwards or downwards in regards to uh, possible grades and further educational development. So this usually was the issue with a 504. Not to say that it is in every case or that this is, is not helpful. It's simply that the disability and the dependency on the child <clears throat> to communicate was usually uh, uh, grounds for failure. To remediate, to help with this, usually the best advice is to usually to ask the parent and ask the teacher to be positive for the response or to initiate a response between teacher and parent directly and not to try to go through the student as there was already a disability that was a problem in the first place to initiating the communication. This usually was, that in itself usually uh, was a big advantage, but not always as successful as it would be if implemented due to either family situations or working moms and dads. And it was not as easy as the remedy sounds, but it was the most effective when implemented. That is just an example of how and why frustration or advocacy issues occur in the practicality of what on paper is a good idea and in many cases is helpful. But when it breaks down, that is one instance of why. So now we'll move on. If the student does qualify to be let me backtrack. If the student is eligible, determined to be eligible by the information of the analytics, which is a subject, subjective issue because he's not been evaluated yet, he's simply being referred for eligibility if he sh should be evaluated. Usually this is Fs and grades or some sort of behaviors that amount to failure and everyone, or there could be some physical issues that is just, the student is just not responding is obvious to, uh, such as a speech impediment or uh, processing that is clearly identified by a teacher. But in most cases, they're subtle. Uh, 
distractibility is common from one child to the next and doesn't necessarily mean that ADHD is part of it or a medical reason is part of it or is it's common and is not considered a medical and so on and so forth. These spectrum of issues are now the line of contention. How much is needed and how much support should be given based on the budget, how much budget, how many teachers are available. So some of these things might be important for parents to discuss, find out before they look at what is uh, the eligibility. It should not be the determining factor. That's absolutely the school should be find a way in their budget to deal with this. But at times when this budget is set and there may be an overcrowding situation, tensions rise, and I will discuss that with some other cases. So a student is referred for the eligibility to sit, to be qualified to sit for an evaluation, is determined to be eligible for an evaluation. At that time, then when they're eligible, then usually the school psychologist is then involved in making the assessment, as well as being potentially part of the team or not. It is varied from being involved in determining whether it's a 504 or not, or depends on the district and the building from what I've seen. Even though the rules and regulations, state and federal, sometimes try to hammer out each and one of these issues beforehand, it often comes down again to, uh, depending on the, the severity, the, where the school and how they administer policy. So when the child sits for their initial evaluation, there is in the regulations a consent. Parents need to sign a consent. And this begins a relationship with the parents and the school psychologist and others with the understanding that communication is really key here. And with struggling parents working or otherwise, this communication is part of what helps uh, a student uh, get services or when a parent is not as involved, there may be some uh, alternatives that would perhaps be thrown out for this child. So at this point, parent advocacy is related to availability and communication. Because at this time, this is what the, the school psychologist is trying to get information, is trying to collect data. And while most of it is taken from the cognitive assessments, behavioral assessments, and functional assessments, it is getting the understanding of a child who at both at home and at school, their behaviors and the issues at hand and medical reports really help provide the school psychologist to help 
the parent and the student move forward through the system. When a school psychologist does not have enough information, such as medical records, it makes for a much more difficult assessment and a labeling and uh, providing accommodations when there's difficulty identifying the issue that the student may have. For example, if a doctor uh, identifies a student with ADHD and has a medical diagnosis, that is a documentation the school psychologist uses to advocate for that student's in the meeting with an IEP. If he doesn't have that or say autism, then more subjective opinions by teachers, by student or by other administrative staff can take play, can take precedence over what really might be a medical issue interfering with students' developmental academics, developing the students' academics. So there are the communication and gathering that documentation assures the school psychologist's ability to move forward the process in a way that at the end identifies either the qualifications or uh, can promote. I have been in several meetings and I will uh, note those cases where the medical documentation was the identifying factor and became contentious, uh, so much so that I know for sure that that student would not have qualified without it, even though they were struggling, even though it was a teacher referral in the beginning of the process and was objected to by the end uh, several months later because they were doing so much better. But I will, I will digress and uh, get to that. So we have the students and we have the consent. And that consent is also another 35 days uh, to complete. And once the consent is in, depending on the state, there's from 35 in Washington to uh, different lengths of time in other states to complete the process. And to realize that the school psychologist does not have just one, but perhaps 10, 12 uh, initial evaluations, he may also have um, in addition 35 to 40 more for that year likely. And so he is juggling uh, not only one, two, but multiple timelines to complete Reevaluations and initial evaluations. So there's there's some tension and stress involved in completing and recognizing or determining there are new, that a student calls for initial evaluation. Reevaluations are done every three years as required by law, and it may be with assessments, but it was definitely team determination. It may be with assessments. It may not but it is on a schedule basis that these our uh, evaluations come up every year. So on top of that, with the initial evaluations you have, there may be 
a group of evaluations that all of a sudden need to be determined and are being pushed by the teachers or the parents. And so there's a lot of, at times, pushback by the school psychologists, perhaps, in ways that are borderline, maybe concerning borderline cases where they may or may not uh, have the information. And this is why we go back to good communication, good medical documentation, and the clarification that pushes that forward. That is what helps that advocacy for the student. Once a student has qualified, there are several forms of qualifications as we mentioned before. So there may be a qualification as we mentioned under specific learning. Uh, the, well, first, as we mentioned, there's autism and uh, cognitive impairment and behavior and so on. The difference can be from one state to another. Washington State for learning disabilities, specific learning disability is a wide category. And it includes dyslexia, dyscalculia, which is a uh, difficulty looking at math numbers, actually the same way one has difficulty looking at words or letters. There's dysgraphia, uh, lear learning disabilities in writing, can involve the physical act of writing or the mental activity of comprehending, synthesizing information, uh, neatness, accuracy. Um, there's aphasia, language and communication learning disabilities involve the ability to understand or produce spoken language. There's auditory visual processing problems, auditory processing disorder. And so we see that there begins to be a wide number of potential issues when it's under specific learning disabilities. And when would that be? Well, in part, because we do not have any medical documentation. So if there's an ADHD medical, that is much easier to, for qualifications in particular, because there is less restriction in some states on the learning difficulties. In other words, grade levels or the analytics of the information of the grades and their tests. The same with autism. Autism is re recognized as a category because it's concluded in a medical, it's, it's diagnosis of a medical disorder affects the brain's normal development of social and communication skills. And these can be clearly assessed in the same way that speech language. And it's for this reason that when one normally does not have a medical documentation, the person can easily be lumped into specific learning disabilities because it is there that one doesn't, most of those issues are non-medical, but are still issues of 
developmental uh, learning uh, difficulties. In, in the learning disabilities, there are several, there, it may vary from state to state, but in Washington state, the issue at hand has been that there's a criterion of discrepancy that is used between the cognitive assessment, the difference between the cognitive and the scores of their academic. So there's two assessment tests given usually in an initial evaluation, not always in a reevaluation, but in an initial to determine the play, uh, category that the disability is in. In the initial evaluation, a cognitive in which something that I've done multiple times addresses processing speed, memory, short-term, long-term, uh, auditory processing if, with certain assessments, and reading, and so forth. Academic assessment determines usually the level at which they're able to, uh, their academics are at. For a standard group at a standard age uh, across the country, not considered state by state, but by a standard national um, means. And this means is the bell curve they use as the bell curve that I have discussed in previous podcasts in different ways. And this way, the bell curve is used literally as a cutoff point in which uh, it's a moving point, but is a determination of what is average for that age group. And to be in or out is significant, but what is more significant about a specific learning uh, disability category is that it's the difference between the cognitive and the academic. So if one has a high cognitive ability, but shows a low academic, that difference is greater than one who is low cognitive and low uh, academic. In many ways, this is, seems unfair me, but is used because it's considered to be about the potential. So someone who is considered high cognitive abilities would be considered to have high potential. And therefore, the difference in any category shows that it is the difference of their academic development that is missing, not a genetic or mental or some physical aspect to why they are unable to do well academically. So that is it in theory. The DSM, which is the mental health book, uh, mental health diagnosis guide to, um, for uh, psychiatrists has removed the discrepancy and simply and taken out the, the idea that there should be a difference between academic and cognitive and perhaps made it more subjective in at what level is a cognitive ability to note the academic ability. And in some states, this also may be true. However, in Washington state, the discrepancy is still used and creates problems when there's not a medical diagnosis 
for those who may have lower or show lower cognitive uh, scores on their assessment, and at the same time may not be that separate from their cognitive uh, academic assessment. The problem for parents and students, I believe, which I believe I saw, is that students, for many reasons, may do, uh, especially on different assessments, use often can use slightly different uh, measures. So if one is struggling with uh, auditory processing, but actually is really smart, they, it will weigh their cognitive much lower than if it wasn't on the assessment to begin with. And I've seen this uh, not only in different sectors, but if one has is distracted with ADHD but is not diagnosed, they may show poor short-term memory in the assessment, lowering their overall score, affecting which may be the actual problem, and often highlights the lack of medical documentation. Basically, that is usually what happens, that there is some reason why there hasn't been a diagnosis, uh, or my view should have been, but I have no basis to make that determination as I'm not a doctor, a medical doctor to do that. In my opinion, that is what I usually see for some reason. Uh, it perhaps, uh, as well as autism, uh, autism diagnosis can be very subjective uh, as well. Um, and the determination based on the doctor's idea of what the severity means, the function, and not on a, a strict uh, determinations such as what might one see with a specific disease. So the spectrum produces spectrum results. And often someone who has ADHD or is suffering or uh, challenged by that may not be documented and is put into learning disabilities where they may actually not qualify in some states because it's not recognized that their cognitive ability is really different from their academic even though the weighted uh, overall is low, there may be indications of high. And that is usually where I have come in and pointed that out to the team and indicated that there is there may is likely an issue when one, where in the sector of cognitive assessment, is, there can be a high score. And then in another portion, a low score, despite the overall low score, there may be some issues in Usually, I will discuss that with the parents and see if they cannot back up some medical support for that issue, as it's not an overall low it's not an overall low score in every sector, but it may be in one or two that identifies a particular issue. And that is why there is often issues or confrontations between parents and staff or opinions made by staff in regards to how a student is doing or is qualified or should be receive an IEP. These are the things that come to the table and bring, unless it's very clear, uh, can bring uh, difficulty in solving 
or helping a student through the process or an understanding of what services they need or how they can help themselves. In another issue, in another case, uh, we mentioned that we've been talking about issues in specific learning disability. But the same can be said even when they've been identified, a student's been identified with an issue. And the referral indicates a cognitive deficit by the teacher. The referral actually indicates that there's a problem with, or there's a, they feel that the student has some cognitive functioning issue. And after good communication, lengthy communication with the parent and an understanding of siblings. In one instance, I was able to, I was confident that there was, there was medical documentation or that there should be uh, as there were siblings. And it turned out that the parent had withheld that documentation for their own child. So they withheld it to keep their children happy. But in doing so, when, uh, and the parents had not referred, it was the teachers themselves had referred the, the children. So when they were qualified, both of the siblings were qualified, they'd been homeschooled, they immediately started to do well. Despite the fact, because of the new awareness, the other daughter was made aware that she was and indeed have autism. And she, because her sister was, she was old enough and she took on that responsibility and they understood uh, and were prepared for that. So when they both, they had been homeschooled and when they both entered, it was their determination to enter into the socialization of high school. When they did so, they met with some biases from staff. Homeschooling for some, and when children had been homeschooled and then entered into secondary, there was some bias. There was some bias, especially when they were entered into special education qualification. And there was resentment. There was actually some resentment. And when those students were doing well, they were getting uh, B's and A's after two months because they were, to me, uh, even despite uh, with the cognitive assessments and, and the academic, I felt I understood they were high-functioning autistic and they were quickly adapting and learning. And after several months of what appeared to be cognitive deficits turned out to be uh, autistic issues and they were getting B's and A's and soon I was getting complaints from other professionals that I had made a wrong decision. And this is not to highlight whether the decision was right or wrong, but to indicate how this impacts kids. What a school psychologist, I was advocating for those kids because I felt I understood what would actually help them meet their potential. And I felt that if they were getting B's and A's, they did, as they were referred to as being uh, honestly looking to be placed in uh, much lower placement where uh, those who really are struggling. And there was a great push for that. And 
with a lot of consideration and good communication with the parents. Uh, these kids were able to move out and they can always exit the program or take advantage of it and do well to meet their potential. But without that communication and documentation, I would not have been able to do that for them. And the pushback was on me in the end, uh, not on the students. And that was fine. That is something that I will gladly uh, take as a burden when I know that there is success. In another case study, which was difficult uh, for the, not just for myself, but for, because of those conditions that I mentioned earlier, those commission, uh, conditions I mentioned was the overload of students or the overload of special education students for the too few special ed teachers. And they were upset. They were upset because these two new initial evaluations were students who had, did not have a medical documentation, but had severe behavioral issues, but tested very high. So they were uh, obviously, for to me, although they had not been determined to be, they were behaving in the same way one would expect high-functioning autism, which is to have great superior cognitive abilities and really uh, almost uh, for one student to be kicked out and the other to almost with the same behavioral issues to be kicked out of school. And yet with that, there was at least an understanding that they were had great potential. Not only that, the self-awareness and most of all, the aunt of one of the was able to feel great understanding and pride that at least she knew what she was fighting for, for her child, that he had great abilities, but he was, and finally she was determined to go look for medical uh, determination to see if he really was indeed had autistic uh, diagnosis. So again, getting closer to the end here, I would like to just mention a couple things. One is the Supreme Court Spans right of special education students by uh, an article by Jeff Goodman, February 21st, in regards to the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in unanimous decision on March 21st, 2017, that schools must do more than provide merely more than de minimis education program for students with disabilities. The decision is a result of a case known as Andrew F. versus Douglas County School District in Colorado. And this was an autistic child who did have a diagnosis, was in an IEP, but did not receive the services that the parents expected, in fact, was going downhill, put him in a private school, and then uh, went to court over the school district because they claimed that the school did not do enough. And the Supreme Court agreed. So this is, again, a ruling that is for advocacy of parents to know that even once their child is in a program, they do have more rights than to just be there and that there is recognition that they are education, uh, looking to be develop their ed academics. And this would not be talk revolution if I did not just briefly discuss what really, how we can move this forward um, in a way that I believe would remove the budget 
inclinations of these programs and the divide between who is a disability and who the stigma of who doesn't. And offering new solutions was a part of our part of our discussion and development, cognitive functioning in all individuals. Having been on a committee for alternative education, I have some understanding of how many different perspectives can come to the table with ideas on what works best and what should be done. Some basic conclusions I walked away with are these. Money divides people and groups, those into positive as well as negative categories of labels and general lowering of self-esteem. It also sets up confrontation between those who seek special education and those who receive special education and outcomes. And afterwards, jobs, employment, and the stigma continues. My preference, my wish, would be the availability of an IEP, regardless of abilities and situation for all children. An IEP is simply an individualized learning program in this age of computers, this should be possible and preferable, especially for teachers. Just very quickly, as we're running out of time, an example is robotic software. Robotic software in programs for teaching is now regularly available uh, for such subjects as math. The software basically provides the ability for the student to move at their pace an ability to repeat parts that are difficult and tracks their progress. This enables the teacher to follow the struggles of each child and give specific attention to their difficulties. This can be accomplished in each subject if programs are written to include the robotic response necessary to indicate the analytics of each child's response and speed freeing up the teacher's time in class, helping identifying each student's struggles. Software analytics can also provide detailed problems in reading, identify the problems in reading, writing, and so forth. Instead of spending and determining perhaps uh, money on textbooks, not books, but textbooks, money could be spent on the software to have available on the subject that is easily adjusted for every child. With early detection of dyslexia and dyscalculia, the greater the chance of success for students with these disorders, as well as faster integration into general curriculum and secondary education. Each proactive engagement lowers costs, increases productivity with greater positive results for fewer social issues after graduation. My next broadcast will lead to a discussion, will be, will lead a discussion of culture, the influence of cognitive functioning, the effects of cultural displacement and transition on mental health, as well as effects on trauma, the development of culture and subsequent resiliency. Consultations are available through my website, www.emotionalbudgeting.com for parents and caregivers, individuals and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on amazon.com. Welcome to the brain revolution. Until next time, this is Dr. Paul Sampataro. Consultations are available through EmotionalBudgeting.com for parents, caregivers, individuals, and educators. Copies of the book are available digitally on Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.com. 
Welcome to the Brain Revolution. Until next time.